Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. To fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. To fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Royfield Brown and with me I have... Uh, Luke Baxter. Hmm. And you're probably wondering, well, where's David? My mucker, my, my best friend, you probably do know, but if you don't, he's rather poorly, he's poorly sick. We wish him a speedy recovery and in his place, uh, warming his very uh, ample seat, uh, <laughs> we have uh, Luke Baxter, who um, does a podcast or two of his own, don't you, Luke? Uh, I uh, did a podcast uh, once, uh, yes, but I'm definitely uh, feeling... You did uh, one podcast once. I did one podcast once, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, perhaps, I should, perhaps you didn't know this. <laughs> yes, I did oh. one with my son uh, called Our History Podcast, uh, but we've sort of wrapped it up because he's now 13 and far too cool to be doing anything with his dad. But it was a podcast which had great plaudits and uh, high critical acclaim. <laughs> I'd like to think so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're working on lots of actually podcasts, educational podcasts at the moment for the Spanish and Latin American markets for people learning ah. English. Um, that's one of our big projects I'm working on at the moment. It's quite interesting, actually. And, of course, listener, you've heard our Luke before because he does the social media roundup. I do indeed. And uh, if yeah. anyone else wants to help out the social media roundup, uh, any uh, support would be very gratefully received. That is absolutely not a jokey request. Um, we do have a vacancy on the things that made England. So um, if you are big into Facebook and you want to help out, uh, go onto our Facebook group and send us a message and say, Oi, I could do that. And it would be greatly received. And you don't even have to be English, just as long as you speak English. I think that's a very good point indeed. Um, hopefully we're going to try and tempt uh, Fiona back, uh, which would be wonderful, but it would be good to get any other sport if uh, anyone's got some time on their hands. Below the Bank of England is one of the largest stores of gold anywhere in the world. We look after more than 400,000 gold bars, worth billions of pounds. The gold is kept in nine underground vaults and we guard it very carefully. Our customers are the UK government, banks and other governments around the world. Each gold bar costs hundreds of thousands of pounds. Their value can go up and down. Our customers can trade their gold bars with other customers at the bank. When a customer trades gold, it usually doesn't move. Instead, the name of the owner will change on our system. Even though we look after lots of gold, we only own two bars. From the Mint, along Leadenhall Street, down Cornhill past the Exchange, to the old lady of Threadneedle Street herself. 
Here it turns into the side entrance and drives straight into the bullion yard. Now there's the escort, armed. There's the watchman at the mint, the porters at the bank, all armed. There's not a chance, Mr. O'Shea. That's where the money is, Mr. Walsh. Yeah, but why the Bank of England? Because there's more of it there than anywhere else. Now, uh, Luke, I feel somewhat remiss in terms of the topics that I've kind of covered on the things that made England. People see them as somewhat ephemeral, somewhat jokey, you know, HP sort. I think it's one of the foundational <laughs> uh, aspects of, a, of, a, of an English ironing table. Uh, I didn't but, get my vote. Yeah, it did. Well, well um, what I've decided right. to do is pull out my big guns oh. this week. I've gone for an institution. No one can say this is not one of the key things which has made England. But it's one of those institutions which has not only made England, but has made Britain. But... It ah. has the name of our country emblazoned in its title. It's the Bank of England. Mm. It's one of those things which I think is such a permanent part of the establishment that it's almost invisible. It just is. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the history of this organisation, it's ultimately the thing which has given rocket fuel to England and to Britain. So the Bank of England is a central bank and the regulator of the United Kingdom. And it's the model of which most central banks throughout the world are actually based on. Its main function is to ensure that the economy and the money of England remain stable and that the economic policies of England, forward slash Britain, to be fair, the United Kingdom, shall we say, are upheld. Small little tidbit, the gold alone, which is hidden in the secret vaults underneath the Bank of England, is worth $248 billion, no, billion pounds. Are these vaults like some sort of Gringotts Bank in Harry Potter? And You've just told me where well, they are. They don't have that secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, everybody knows where they are, but okay. check this out. Right, so it's the amount of gold in there is worth uh, $350 billion. And this is just the gold. So we're not even talking about the other things of value that they have down there, right? But the bank hosts the official gold reserves, not only of the UK, but also of another 30 countries. And here's the bit which is Harry Potter-esque. The keys (laughs) that are needed to open the doors of the vaults are three foot long. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. This is Hogwarts stuff. It really is. As of April 2016, the bank held... 400,000, so just under half a million gold bars, which is equivalent to just over 5,000 tonnes of gold. The vault holds as much as 3% of all gold minted in human history. 3% is in the Bank of England. (laughs) That is terrifying. So have you got one of these three-foot keys that we could (laughs) (laughs) share? I, I tell you, there, there's a crazy story which um, didn't actually make my notes, but it made my research, um, which I'll quickly just tell you now before I, I launch into the reason why uh, we need to put the Bank of England in the uh, cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, things were that lax around uh, about the 1830s that um, there was some building work going on in a building right next door to the Bank of England, which is in Threadneedle Street in the city of London. And uh, so these guys were uh, just like digging away, doing the foundations, and they just like um, tapped this wall, collapsed, and they were in the, the vault of the Bank of England. <laughs> and they walked in, took, took a pile of cash, and then walked out the next day and took it to the Bank of England and says, you need to do something about your security. Because, we're, <laughs> you know, and I forget the paltry amount of money that these workmen actually got for handing the money back as some kind of reward. But it was just so lax. And there is something towards the end of my notes, uh, which I'm going to talk about, about the amateurism, actually, of the Bank of England, all the way up, really, until uh, the early 20th century. It was right. it, They were known as just people just were just dabbling uh, with finances. So lots of sort of Tim Nice but Dim running the bank. Yes. (laughs) And there was definitely a revolving door of kind of merchants. If you look at all the governors of the Bank of England throughout the 19th century, uh, and they only had two-year tenures, and it was something which, you know, you you just gave to the boys. But things have sharpened up a pace since. It was established in 1694, Mm-hmm. to act as the English government's banker. It is the world's 
eighth oldest bank. I would have put it about number two or three. But anyway, it's the world's eighth oldest bank. It was privately owned by its stockholders from its foundation in 1694 until it was nationalised in 1946 by Clement Attlee's Labour government. Good old Clem. Mm -hmm. Uh, The bank regained its independence as a public organisation in 1998 and it has the freedom in setting British monetary policy and interest rates, which is tasked to the bank's Monetary Policy Committee. The Governor of the Bank of England is one of the most important public officials in the United Kingdom. The Governor of the Bank of England is also the Chairman of the Monetary Policy Committee. The 120th and current Governor is the Canadian Mark Carney, who was appointed in 2013. He is the first non-Brit to be appointed and has taken up British citizenship, so he can actually have the role. But he's still there, is he? Because I thought he's, he's still about there. To leave. He's, he's about to leave. He's grooming his successor, whose name I completely forget, but his successor doesn't take up the role until March. Right. And it's one of the things which is um, kind of unique about the role is that you know who your successor is going to be, and he does have. I was going to talk an internship. You hardly have an internship. You're going to run the back of England. But you are groomed. So it's a, it's a seamless uh, succession. Right. The bank is one of eight banks authorised to issue banknotes within the United Kingdom. I didn't realise it was that many. Yeah, I know. Um, bank of Scotland, Royal Bank of Scotland, Ulster Bank. Then there's, isn't it Clydesdale or something? Oh, yeah, well, there's yeah, one yeah. begins with a C. Yeah. I've got four off the top of my head, but there, there are more. There, there's, there's another eight. Oh, that's it. It's yeah. all the funny bits, isn't it? <laughs> Isle yeah. Man, Jersey Guernsey. Yeah. Yeah. The bits that we forget are actually, well, they're not really British. Yes, that's a conversation for another time. They're British, yeah. but not. So the bank is authorised to issue banknotes in the United Kingdom. It has a monopoly on the issue of banknotes in England and Wales and regulates the issue of banknotes by commercial banks in Scotland and Northern Ireland. So basically, it's the daddy. It's the daddy bank. You know, the other banks can like do, do what they want to do to a degree. Bank of England slaps them down. The bank is headquartered in the city of London on Threadneedle Street and has been there since 1734. Um, the Bank of England became not only the financial heart of London, but of the British Empire. And then to this day, along with New York, it still holds the title of being uh, the world's most preeminent financial centre. And that is really down to the Bank of England. Yeah. The bank made Britain. Britain. And the empire. Yeah, I'm saying Britain here. Very clearly saying Britain. Because the lines where England and Britain start and end kind of get really blurred here. Because you've got to remember, if it was founded in um, 1694, the Act of Union is 1707, isn't it? Yeah, so it was only the Bank of England for 13 years, really. Well, it's always been the Bank of England, Luke. (laughs) But what what you're saying is solely operating for the government of England only for It was the idea of a Scotsman. Well... Very smart guy. But, yeah, um, a lonely Scot. But, I know I've been looking up. <laughs> this is an institution that has powered the empire like no other. It paid for the British Navy, the slave trade and the Industrial Revolution, the wars against Napoleon, the First World War, the list goes on and on and on. In this show, we're going to look at its contribution to the British Navy, yeah. the slave trade and the Industrial Revolution. We're going to touch a little bit on, on World War One. A humiliating defeat by France, the dominant naval power of the 17th century, was a catalyst for England rebuilding itself as a global power or powering itself as a a global entity. England had no choice but to build a navy to counter the fact that the French now had control of the English Channel and it needed to build ships and to do that it needed money. The Battle of Beachy Head was fought on the 10th of July in 1690. The battle was a great French tactical naval victory over the English and our Dutch allies. The Dutch lost nine ships in this battle. We only lost one, but the French lost none at all. But what this battle actually meant, Luke, was that the English Channel was now in the hands of the French. And this was at a time when King James II was campaigning in Ireland as a first step, ultimately, to try and regain his throne. He was the Catholic king. He, yeah. he was the Jacobite, hence yeah. James. Right. right. Yeah, so yeah. We have, we're at war with France. We have this uh, the deposed king over there in Ireland. 
is a glorious revolution and we are spooked. We've now lost control of the English channel. Diaries, John, to the French, exactly. Nothing worse. Um, Now, the diarist John Elwin wrote at the time, the whole nation now exceedingly alarmed by the French fleet braving our coast, even to the very Thames mouth. The French ships are going up the Thames. To oppose this supposed invasion, because we presume that the French are going to invade now, we muster 6,000 troops and a ragtag militia, and they're prepared by the Earl of Marlborough. That's our defence. Now, we need money, and money is in short supply. And the credit of William III's government was incredibly low. It was so low that they couldn't just go and borrow the £1,200,000 at 8% interest that the government said it needed to prosecute the war. Then this was not an inconsiderable amount of money. A government should have been able to be able to raise this money, but they, they just couldn't. The, the government's finances were in such a state. And because he was Dutch, wasn't he? So, I mean, weren't there sort of Dutch banks that would have lent him money, do you think? Maybe they would have lent him personally the money, right, but yeah. they didn't want to lend the, the, the government of England the money, yeah, yeah. the thing, to prosecute the war of which the Dutch have just lost nine ships in to protect our shores. Maybe the Dutch bankers saw us as a bad bet. The establishment of the bank was devised by Charles Montague, the first Earl of Halifax in uh, 1694, as we said before. Mm -hmm. The plan of 1691 had been proposed by William Patterson, but had not actually been acted upon. We had had to finish the war. We had to prosecute the war uh, before we could actually kind of like get this done. The Royal Charter was granted on the 27th of July through the passage of the Tonnage Act. The first governor was Sir John Hoveland, and the charter was renewed in 1742, 1764, and 1781. To generate subscriptions to the loan, the subscribers were to be incorporated by the name of the governor and the company of the Bank of England. The bank was given the exclusive possession of the government's finances and was the only limited liability corporation allowed to issue banknotes. This is very important. The lenders would give the government cash in the form of bullion and issue notes against government bonds, which then could be lent again. The 1.2 million needed was raised in 12 days, half of which was used to rebuild the Navy. Uh, Not only did the Navy get built, but there was a great side effect of having the government having this amount of money. A naval industrial complex came into being, Luke. Ironworks that were needed to make more nails and advances in agriculture that were needed to, to feed the Navy quadrupled. This started to transform the English economy. Really, so Britain or England wasn't a naval power then in the 17th century? No, and, and it's kind of odd when you think about it. But you go back to the time of Henry VIII, and he had his flagship, the Mary Rose, didn't he? He could afford to build one great ship, yeah, yeah and it's sunk. Yeah. So even though we were an island, and uh, you know we've been invaded by uh, the Romans, the uh, the Normans, the Vikings, Vikings etc., yeah. our acumen in terms of being able to float logs of wood on the ocean and to man them really comes about in the 18th century. Because I suppose the whole sort of defending against the Spanish Armada was a bit of a surprise, more than given we were the plucky underdogs at the time. Exactly. We have no naval record worth talking about until the 18th century. And it's this defeat at the Battle of Beachy Head, which kind of spurs us because we think we're going to be invaded. Yeah. You know, and all we have is 6,000 men to defend us against, uh, I think it's de Tocqueville, uh, the, the Mark of de Tocqueville, somebody else, isn't it? What's the name of this French commander who you actually. Oh, um, I'd never even heard of the Battle of the Beachy Head. Yeah. The, the French commander was actually stripped of his position uh, because he didn't follow up um, right. his victory. It was a massive own goal strategically by the French that they didn't follow it up because we were in a perilous state. This new economic freedom, all of a sudden, we can have this uh, naval industrial complex, helped to create a new kingdom of Great Britain. England and Scotland were formally united, kind of, as you kind of said, in 1707. And the 18th century sees it become the most powerful 
and most economically stable European state for the next 200 years. The power of the Navy made Britain a dominant power, not only in Europe, but in the world. And its Navy became the policeman of the world seas. That's how important that that victory actually is. And the fact that we spent £600,000 on the Navy, the ramifications go on for hundreds of years. The British national debt in 1815, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, reached a peak of £1 billion. That was more than 200% of GDP. That's the whole economy. Yeah. It's a whole uh, one billion pounds in those times must have been a mad amount, wasn't it? I was stunned when I saw that figure, stunned when I saw that figure. Even if that figure is inflated somewhat, the percentage of our debt ratio to the whole economy, not just the government regular spending, but the whole economy I have read is was 200%. Right, yeah. And But such was the confidence in the Bank of England And British financial institutions, this was just seen as a minor blip on the country's bank balance. Ultimately, you can owe as much money as you want if people think you're going to pay it back. You've got the wherefore to pay it back. And that was the thing. Whether it was um, domestic investors or foreign investors, they said the Bank of England is good for this. And it was 200% of GDP, which is unheard of. In 2014, the UK government started paying back the nation's first world war debt, which amounted to £2 billion. But started paying back or or finished paying? Started. Check this out. So it shows you the confidence that money markets actually have in the Bank of England. No one's running after the Bank of England waving IOUs. And there's even a £218 million debt hanging over the country, of which the Bank of England is paying back bonds stretching back as far as the 18th century. Yes, because, I mean, we're still paying back for the slavery, aren't we? Absolutely. Bonds, treasury bonds, you name it, and whatever. Yeah. Uh, we are still paying back interest on those. Yeah. But, but what we said before is that this institution so has the confidence of uh, people with money, so they know that we're good for it. And just before we go completely off the subject of us paying debts going back hundreds of years, the financial crash of 1720, the South Sea bubble, that has still not been paid off in its whole entirety. But with our record current low interest rates, the British government for the last five years has been trying to aggressively pay off some of the debts which had been racked up 300 years ago. Yeah, it was quite funny. I was looking at the Bank of England website. They had stuff about the South Sea bubble. And uh, I think at the time, you know, the South Sea company was threatening the bank's position. Mm. And on the website, it's, there's a little note that said, and thousands of people were ruined. And you sort of feel like whoever wrote that was slightly happy. <laughs> the Bank of England <laughs> got its revenge. It's like, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you toddle <laughs> off now. <laughs> it is interesting to note that we think of the Bank of England as being this arm of the government, because exactly what it is that um, sets, doesn't actually set monetary policy, but enacts it. And there is there is no other financial institution that comes anywhere near it in terms of power. But back in the 1720s, you had banks were a, a new phenomena in Britain, relatively new in England or, or in Scotland. And they were competing against each other. And the whole thing about the South Sea bubble was that bank aggressively went out and speculated to accumulate much more money than the Bank of England. And what the Bank of England historically has always been is steady. Yes. Incredibly steady. It only really sort of assumed the responsibilities of a central bank in like the 19th century. It was still just a bank amongst many in the 18th century, wasn't it? Competing against other banks, whereas we don't think of it as competing against other banks now. Yeah, it's got no ATMs or cash points. Um, You know, you you can't go and just open an account with the the Bank of England. But the Bank of England's introduction wasn't without its hitches back in 1694. The issuance of notes contributed to the first wave of counterfeit money. And as a result, the Bank of England eventually began printing its bills on paper with visible watermarks though these weren't actually manufactured until the 19th century. 
they weren't for sort of set amounts to begin with, were they? You you, you could write them like you'd write a check. Yeah. You in, in effect, they're a glorified check. Yeah. There there is um weird story which I I hadn't actually heard about before, and if I had, I'd completely forgotten. Talking about banknotes during the Second World War, uh, the German Operation Bernhardt. Do you know about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, for people that didn't, I didn't know about this. The Germans basically attempted to counterfeit denominations between five and 50 pounds, and they produced over half a million English banknotes, British banknotes, each month in 1943. The original plan was just to parachute the money into the country to destabilise our economy. But the Germans realised it was much more useful just to pay German agents operating throughout Europe with this counterfeit money. At the end of the war, most of it fell into Allied hands, but the forgeries were around for years and led to the bank cancelling denominations above £5. And they, they were made in the, I think there's a film about it, I haven't seen it, but they were made in the Sachsenhausen concentration camp, the forged notes. I did not know that. Who's supposed to have done the research on this episode, Because <laughs> you, you are doing a sterling just, job, sir. <laughs> hey, you see my pun? I said you're doing a sterling job. Ah, don't make it. I found that joke to be lost. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I just looked at, at the, there's a nice history section on the Bank of England website. Ah. Which is worth having. You know what? I, actually, that's the one place I didn't go for, for all of my uh, research. I said primarily that we're going to focus on, Luke, the Navy, the slave trade and the Industrial Revolution. And we're going to briefly touch on World War One in terms of three key things which have happened to this country in the last uh, 300 years, that without the Bank of England, outcomes would have been very, very different. So remember, we get defeated by the French at the Battle of Beachy Head when we decide we need a navy because we need to be in control of the English Channel. Equipping the navy allowed the English to focus on constant training, which is really important, and gunnery practice much more than any other rival navy. British ships in the 18th and 19th century were just the best manned in Europe. Money from the Bank of England meant that seamen enjoyed regular meals and were healthier on ship than they were actually in civilian life. Captain Cook forced his crew to eat sauerkraut when it was discovered that it would combat scurvy. His trip around the world in the late 18th century was the very first long-distance voyage which didn't lose not one man to disease. Because of the health-giving properties of citrus fruits and as fruit in general, that's where us Brits picked up the nickname Limeys. Yeah. During the American War of Independence, business for the Bank of England was so good that one George Washington, a rebel guerrilla fighter, <laughs> uh, going up against British troops in some minor colonial engagement, Did remained he get in there? a... But he remained a shareholder of the Bank of England throughout the whole period of the American War of Independence. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. That is how good the stock of the Bank of England was. The Navy kept the sea line safe for merchants in the 18th century, but banking was underdeveloped really outside of London. So the Bank of England serviced loans to slave traders and planters who badly needed credit. A slave voyage from Liverpool to Africa and then on to the Caribbean or the American colonies yeah. before returning home to England took 18 months. Yeah. Each part of the trade, whether it's buying and selling of Africans, buying and importing of sugar, involved money or credit. Both of these were in great supply in Threadneedle Street. The Bank of England underpinned the slave trade. So basically that 18 months they needed to, they wouldn't get their money back for those 18 months that that ship was afloat, doing the sort of triangle trade or whatever it was called, yeah. But also is a massive capital expenditure. Yeah. So as a postscript, there's a high risk that the human chattel my ancestors, basically. Yeah. And the non-human cargo could be lost en route. Yeah. So Britain's oldest insurance company, Lloyds of London, basically underwrote or insured the slave ships. 
it's only when the price of buying slaves in Africa was rising and it got to around about £25 per human being uh, in about 1800. And the price for selling them in the Americas um, hadn't risen as quickly. It was only at £35 per slave that the bank's interest in fostering loans for the abomination that is the slave trade kind of called. This wasn't a moral decision. This was, they just looked at it and said, our margins on this are too small. That's pretty revolting. (laughs) Those ships, those merchant ships, you think about it, if it's an 18-month voyage and you're going from Bristol and you are taking your goods then to sell in Africa, then you're going to pick up slaves and then take them to the Americas. This is a massive, massive undertaking. And it can't be underplayed the extent that the Bank of England played in terms of giving, if not money, but notes of credit so that you could actually go and man your ship. You could actually go and get all the things you needed for an 18-month journey. So really the Bank of England sort of got it all going financially and then brought it to an end financially. You know, William Wilberforce is what, like 1780s, 1790s? So he's a little bit before. So there is the moral uh, question of what are we doing, buying and selling human beings? Morally, what are we doing? But yes, by the 1800s, the Bank of England is saying, actually, our profit margins in this aren't great. Uh, we don't want to really be doing this. There are other ways we can be making money. It was 1807 that the slave trade was banned. I haven't got that. It's something like that, isn't it? And, and it's not that it was actually banned. It was the, the trade. The so trade slavery before, isn't banned. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but you couldn't trade. Yeah. And then it's like 1832. I think it's about 1830, 1832, one or the other, when it becomes illegal in the British Empire, actually, to hold people in bondage, which has always been really weird because slavery being banned in England since, what, 1300s? You couldn't actually have slaves. On the mainland of England? Yes. Right. Yeah. Like, legally, you, you couldn't have a slave. So, But we allowed the practice to continue in, in the colonies. Or we allowed it to start. There was no continue because it had stopped. Yeah, yeah. And then the first colonies is like, what, 16, oh, whatever, 16, well, it's like Plymouth Rock and all of that. So anyway, anyway. <laughs> Massive um, frank hypocrisy going on there, isn't there? Well, yeah, we won't have it at home. Just, but, <laughs> just a little, just yeah. a little. Yeah. So a little, little note here about World War One and the bank's position here. The government's efforts to pay for World War I through loans and bonds from the public was a huge failure, mm. something which I didn't know. Bank of England records show that the government's first World War loan scheme of 1914 raised less than a third of its £350 million target. Uh, the £91 million that was raised mostly came from a group of wealthy financiers and companies and private individuals. So the Bank of England paid the rest. So to that famous rallying poster of General Haig saying your country needs you, it was the Bank of England that answered the call to help to defeat the Kaiser. Because they sort of bought back their own stocks, didn't they, By in secret absolutely. to try? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. By 1750, the fact that something new and exciting was happening in England could not be ignored. It was the Industrial Revolution. Entrepreneurs were this new group of individuals whose investments helped spread this new revolution. They were mainly based in the Midlands. It was a centre for industrial growth. Most of them were middle class and were well educated. As the revolution grew, there was a greater demand for more capital and for infrastructure. There were demands for large factories and canals. And then later on, in the 1800s, Railways were also needed. Most of these industrial businesses needed funds, if not just to start up, but just to keep the wheels of their enterprises going. Merchants provided some of the capital beforehand, as did aristocrats. But it really was the Bank of England that really underpinned this new nascent industry. Another little postscript to all of this is that though the Industrial Revolution helped cement uh, this new kind of banking system. 
there are many historical kind of criticisms of not just the Bank of England, but those small banks that were giving money to merchants in the 1700s uh, and early 1800s to help start the Industrial Revolution, is that basically the loans were too short-termist. And this is compared and contrasted with American and German banks that gave much longer-term loans to their countries industries and I think it's kind of interesting uh, to point that out because by the end of the 19th century German industry is on a par with British mm. and and then goes past it and then is stymied by the first world war and we look at the strength of the German economy now which is still fundamentally based on on manufacturing and it, it's much stronger and bigger than the British we can look back historically and see that though our banking system did help those early industrialists in the Industrial Revolution, the way that those loans were actually structured were to our deficit some 200 plus years later. Hmm. Um, Throughout the 19th century, the bank was criticised for the amateurishness of its directors, not least by Walter Bagshot, famous editor of The Economist. Disclosure and accountability were minimal, Luke. Yet the bank was at the heart of the global financial system when London was the world's most potent financial market. I give you, sir, the Bank of England. We could go on. I've given you just a few examples as to how it has rocket fueled the British economy. (laughs) And and kept us in peril, but also helped keep human beings in chattel slavery yes exactly so is that should we be voting on something that's got such a dark background to it it sounds pretty uh, dodgy i I think we have to be honest about what the england is today and all of that and that is certainly part of our history and we shouldn't sort of turn our backs on it but uh yeah exactly on the one hand we can't just take the good in inverted commas which came from the bank of england which was we went from being a middle-ranking European power to the preeminent one for the next 200 years after that battle of Beachy Head. But I don't think you've got to put that all down to the Bank of England, or is it just an element? I would say that it's a key element in that it financed everything. What the English slash the British could do in the days of empire was to project power. And we weren't the most populous European nation, but we were the best equipped. We had the best navy. We had, in terms of man for man, our armies, when they were fighting in continental Europe, were the best. And we had the best equipment. The Industrial Revolution didn't only just start in Britain because of a whole set of peculiar geo geological. Sorry, I I was just going to pick a hole in the the armies being so strong. I thought that maybe we could say that about the navy, but... You know, I mean, the, the, the British well, Army in the Napoleonic Wars was not the scratch on the French. You know what? You might have a slight point. You <laughs> might have a slight point, right? <laughs> but, but what the British Army was, was incredibly well drilled. And But yes, preeminently, the Navy was our thing. I'm going to concede that point completely, Luke. You, you are right. But what we could do in the, during the Napoleonic Wars was to financially aid all of those countries in yes. the continental system, couldn't we? We had the money to do it. Yeah. And we mortgaged the country up to 200 times the size of the economy. The French couldn't do that. The Russians couldn't do that. The Prussians couldn't do that. The Austrians couldn't do that. So even though we didn't put that many men in the field of battle, we could finance everybody else's war effort yeah. against... Put um, a load of Russians in. That's the thing. <laughs> We've done that again. <laughs> Exactly. So, 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 so that's the thing. So I would actually slightly counter your point and say that we can't put everything down to the Bank of England, but it's down to our financial stability. And as you rightly said when we were talking earlier, is that what the, what the Bank of England was in the 18th century isn't what it was by the end of the 19th century. It was one of the Bank of Equals maybe slightly larger in in the 18th century but it begins to underpin the whole financial system of the country yeah so arguably you could say it's the most important british forward slash english institution of the last 300 years which has given us 
the England that, that, that we recognise. I just want to debate around that forward slash that you just did, the British forward slash mm-hmm. English, which, I mean, are, are we going to go into sort of the nitty gritty of things that made England versus things that made Britain? Because that's where I think, the, you know, I mean, you, we've got the, the lonely Scot, this William Patterson, who, whose idea it was. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then it does feel, you know, because it was such a part of the British Empire, the British Navy, that it's a thing that made Britain not really a thing that made England. I mean, do, do we need to make this sort of well, very quite okay. I know there's, some there's of our Facebook a... people are very keen on that. And, you know, I wouldn't, uh, as a representative of the, you know, tribune of the plebs as I am, <laughs> I think <laughs> hair splitting is what we like. <laughs> well, I don't have the name of the gentleman in front of me, but to be fair to our Scott. William Patterson. Um, I don't know diminish his, I don't know, diminish his his place in all of this but it was some 35 years before the initial idea is floated that the idea of a bank of england was actually formed it was was during the restoration period he actually just pulled out an old idea off the shelf basically he says oh we've got this idea we we, we could we could get some get some money here right so that's not to diminish his role in the bank of england but I think we have to say that this is an institution which is English because it's called the Bank of England. Right. And it's always been within England. And it's in the city and of London. The very, it's in the city of London. And yeah. it's the preeminent bank of the government of the United Kingdom. And it has jurisdiction over all other banks that issue banknotes within the United Kingdom. So for that, we very just say English, it's really. English. <laughs> so i think we can safely claim as being an english institution though i admit in many ways of which it's projected its power as being during the duration of the united kingdom it's only 13 years when it was true just the bank of the english government as opposed to british yeah no i know it's a very small point but i thought i should bring it up no 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 it's a fair one it's a fair one and being just a bit dull bit boring that's not a criteria for keeping it out of the cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if you remember back, the last episode was about the archers. Yeah. And um, I'll let you all into a secret. And, uh, you know, here, Luke, that I was supposed to do the Bank of England then. It is a stodgy, boring topic. And I said to David, oh, I've just got so bored do, doing the research on this. You and I just did something you love, do the archers. So that's the reason why the archers got... Um, thrown into the last episode but but this is incredibly important because it goes goes to the fundamental quintessential reason why what the fifth biggest economy in the world today is the british economy yeah we were an average european power until the end of the 17th century we were incredibly average we were not spectacular up until that point that spanish have a much bigger empire than oh, us. Yeah. We're probably on a par with kind of Portugal, probably. You know, the Portuguese have Brazil. The Austrians are seen as dominating the middle of Europe. Yeah. Uh, okay, the Russians haven't quite come into their own. Even the Swedes yeah. have the Swedish Empire back then. We are just average. We are nothing special. And I just go, put this argument to bed, because no one can disagree with this, no. right? That it is it's <laughs> the Bank of England and it's a management of the country's finances for the next 300 plus years, which elevates England, then Britain. It means that by the end of the, the 19th century, England, Britain is the banker to the world. South American republics are in hock to the British government. Mm. Uh, the American industrial growth of the late 19th century is funded by the city of London. It goes on and on and on. It's British for slash English money, which finances uh, the late 19th century Victorian industrial growth throughout the world and colonialism. And, and we just have to be careful as English people that we go, okay, this is the model of all central banks throughout the world now. But with it came a dark side. And that was yeah. that it financed slavery. That slave trade could not have been so efficient where more than 20 million Africans uh, were ripped away from Africa and taken to the New World without the finance of the Bank of England. It wasn't the only institution behind it, but it was actually uh, one of the most preeminent because the English by the end of the 18th century were incredibly efficient in that trade. Yeah. The British. 
No, I think I think it's very important that we include the bad things that made England in. <laughs> Not it yeah. can't all be some sort of weird glorification of everything. No, you were getting you know, you were and, so excited at one point there. I thought this was going to be like the new Hamilton. You know, we're going to have a, a, a musical <laughs> about early financial history. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Maybe that musical should be made. But, you know, with, without that slave trade, you wouldn't have uh, people who call themselves English and who are black uh, yeah. with Brummie accents. Yeah. So it's an important part to acknowledge, you know, in our country's past. Now, Luke, should we go and see if anyone has... Uh, picked up the cudgels, so to speak, and has done a social media roundup. Fiona here. I know it's beyond time for us to do a roundup for the episode of The Things That Made England on The Archers. And as we discuss The Things That Made England, we all share, I'm sure... Warm wishes towards David, who's still recovering from an illness. Our thoughts and wishes and prayers, where appropriate, go out to you, David. Right you are, then. If all the sheep are safely gathered, oh, stop looking at the hedge, Luke. You cannot go through there. Then this shepherd will begin. I can't say that this episode was lively and contentious. Royfield proposed the archers as something that made England, proffered his argument... And David barely murmured any dissent. The polls. Yes, there were two. Royfield posted one in early February. Forty people declared the archers to be England. Eleven said that they'd never heard of it, but they trusted Royfield. They can't ever have been married to him. Eleven said that they'd never heard the archers, but were confident that it only reflects a small part of England. As the poll was done in early February and things seemed a little quiet on the Facebook page, I decided to run a second, simpler poll last week. 37 people thought the Archer's cabinet worthy based on personal experience. 28 have no experience of the Archer's but liked Royfield's argument. Six people do have experience of the archers but were not moved by Royfield's argument and nobody, not a one, voted that they had no experience and thought it not cabinet-worthy. Not a one. So I think Royfield won his argument quite handily. But quite honestly, I think he had a little bit of help from his subject. I asked for personal stories about the archers, which led to me burbling on in my usual tediousness, and I'm only mentioning this as it led to lovely pictures of lambs posted by Luke. Marion Little said, quote, I've never knowingly listened to the archers, but when Royfield Brown did the Dumpty Dum tune, I knew it instantly. That means the archers is under the skin of a culture, surely, especially as we only listen to Radio 1, not Radio 4, in my childhood home. I think that's brilliant, Marion, and probably true of a lot of people. Maybe Barwick Green should be the English national anthem. Duncan Dix said, quote, I've heard the odd episode over the years. It seems anachronistic and full of two-dimensional stereotypes. Wait for it. And so a perfect reflection of England. <laughs> oh, Duncan, naughty. Alison Mary Hebben said, quote, the Archers listened all my life and still follow avidly. It was even the first item on the speech given about me at my retirement party. That's a bit of fabulous right there, Alison. And it was Hello from Pinner, circa 1995, when Tiffany Campbell said, I found the Archers when I was on study abroad for a year, living in Pinner and commuting into UCL every day. I had a small blue Walkman. I became an avid listener. Then back in the States, we couldn't get it until one day BBC4 became available online. Haven't missed an episode since. My son, watching Chicken Run at a small age, came running into the kitchen saying, the music from your radio show is on the movie. And Tiffany, I had to smile. My late in-laws lived in Pinner. 
I wonder which pub you frequented. Stephen Bowden reminded us of the very serious service that the Archers provides when he said, "It's said that in the event of a nuclear crisis, the commanders of UK submarines are supposed to surface from time to time, and see if they can detect Radio Four longwave, provided they catch the Archers." Then civilization still goes on. As crazy as it seems, Stephen, I believe you're absolutely correct. As long as there's the archers, civilization goes on, and it has been declared cabinet-worthy. And so, dear lambs, please wash your hands. I discovered that one round of dum de dum de dum de dum with the end flourish is just about twenty seconds. Stay safe, and until we meet again. Safely graze. So, Luke, it's your topic next. Do you want to give us a little bit of a taster as to what we're going to be listening to in two weeks' time? Ah, uh, yes, we'll be listening to um, well, the founding king of England. Uh, I went uh, spoil. Oh, that's well, Alfred the Great. Alfred the Great. Oh, he's uh, dear, you know. oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like we're going to have a good lot to talk about when we next meet. Brilliant. Well, I'll tell you what you can do, folks. Um, if you want to join the debate, why don't you go onto Facebook, type in the things that made England. You'll find myself, Luke, and uh, hundreds of other people lurking there, talking about the things of which they associated with uh, this wonderful place that we call home. It's also known as England. We'll see you all again in a couple of weeks for another rip-roaring, barnstorming, chest-beating episode of <laughs> The Things That Made England with me, Royfield Brown, and uh, me, Luke Baxter. See you all again soon. Bye-bye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.